500 years ago he washed ashore the sole survivor of a shipwreck and upon the skull of the man who killed his dad he said i'm mad i must eradicate piracy injustice and cruelty and all my sons will follow me so evil doers will believe that this man cannot die the phantom the ghost who walks the phantom enemies beware the phantom's always there but you won't find the phantom he finds Melbourne Supernova 2022. Summary of the show from me would be quiet. It was probably half the size of what you would expect from a, a supernova prior to COVID. But let's not kid ourselves. I'm just happy to be able to get back to a con. It was, it was really great to get out. Um, as I said, half the size, both in terms of number of stalls, area taken up, number of people going. I was there on the Sunday, that could have been some, had something to do with it, but let's be honest, the reason I was there on the Sunday was to attend the uh, the Phantom panel that was held uh, with Maria Lewis from the Phantom Never Dies podcast, Matt Keim, who is a published Phantom uh, artist and author and also appears on this podcast quite often as a host, and Jamie Johnson, who was meant to be there um, Phantom cover artist, but unfortunately had to cancel relatively last minute due to COVID, which was disappointing, but understandable as we go through these current times. Um, spent a fair bit of time hanging out at, at Matt's stall with his his wife, Loney, and also had the luck to, uh, to catch up with Duncan Munro, who, let's be honest, really should have been part of the panel with uh, Jamie stepping away. It would have been good to hear what he had to say, but... Got to sit into the panel and listen. Uh, it was fairly late on a on a Sunday afternoon, so it didn't start till about four o'clock. It wasn't particularly well attended, but to be honest, it didn't make any difference. It was it was great to hear what both Maria and, and Matt had to say. And um, look, I I hope everyone enjoys hearing it. Fantastic time and 
in the publication history. Jim Shepard was finding all these lost gems, all these, uh, these stories which had been really severely edited in the past. And he'd gone to a lot of effort to, to get newspaper strips from around the world to fill in the gaps. Um, and those stories to me were so influential um, in my comic reading, but also in my comic writing. Um, but I might be you to the converted because I know it's the better everyone in the audience. <laughs> and you! Ah, well, purple has always been my favourite colour. But I think it is that thing that I always found really interesting is like how the subtextual becomes textual. So like obviously the phantom is passed on, the, the mantle is passed from like father to son, etc, etc. And I feel like that's the same thing with the character. It's a thing that often gets passed from father or grandfather onto child. And for me, it was my grandfather. Uh, it was a massive phantom fan. I grew up in New Zealand. And so he first got me into the phantom and then it was when the Billy Zane movie came out, we went and saw it and I was just like, Oh, because originally it's like you didn't get to see the colours, it was just like black and white, right? So I didn't know the phantom was purple, and in New Zealand the phantom is actually, uh, yeah, brown, right? It's like a brown and red colour. So then we go to see the movie when we first moved to Australia, and I was like, he is purple, and he's a pet wolf. I was like, oh my god, and then the film obviously does such a great job of uh, having female characters who have like agency and drive and complexity and like. It's a really great sort of, um, I don't want to say expansion, but like adaptation of that first Saint Brotherhood story. And so getting to see. Skyman as well. Exactly, yeah. So getting to see like not only two female characters, but agency, drive, and ambition. But especially when you got to the end of the film and um, and suddenly goes, us girls just stick together, don't you think? I was like, yeah, we're there. <laughs> it just was like so cool to me. And I, it was the movie that was the because it was, the comic was great, and my granddad's passion for it was great, but the film just like captured something. And did you see it with the grandfather? Yeah, so so we saw it like, yeah, we saw it like two or three times on the Gold Coast, not going, not knowing that that was where it was filmed. And then I got older and I started out my career as a police reporter and then transitioned into running about film and entertainment. I was like, oh my God, this is where it was filmed? It's crazy. So we've got to do jobs and stuff on like the same location as where the Phantom movie was filmed. So I was like, wow, can it get any better than this? It's what as it can, but um, it was just like a very exciting moment. Well, that really resonates with me as well because my grandfather as well. When I started to bring up comics, you know, and I, you know, I, I had some Batman comics and Green Lantern and all this different stuff, and he wasn't particularly interested in any of that. But then yeah. when I brought up Phantom comics. Like, oh, yeah, yeah. I used to read these, this is good, you know. Yeah. And so I had this thing for years and years and years. Each fortnight, I'd go down to the shop, yeah. the, the Hurstbridge um, news agency, yeah. and I'd have my pocket money, which was $3 a week. Yeah. And then, oh, there are the phantoms back then, were dollar fifty. but sometimes there was a more expensive one, so I'd have to save up a little bit. Yeah. But yeah, every fortnight, I would, I would buy one, read it, and then put it on my grandpa's bed. We all live together in the same oh, house. And so, yeah. Oh my god, get your own life! <laughs> Stop plagiarizing my life. I thought I'd ask you both do, is there a um, particular issue or a storyline that you're quite favourite of? Or are you talking about that? Spooky word. That's the second favourite. Mine is more of a sentimental favourite, I guess, more. I really love the Princess Valerie story. 
from 1947, I believe it is. So it's like one of the really early Phantom stories. But it was uh, this sort of tribute to Valerie Fox, so Lee Fox's oldest daughter, as her parents were going through a divorce. And the way that, in case nobody here knows, I have this audio documentary about the Phantom called Phantom Never Dies, where we go through um, sort of like the legacy of the character, but also the pop culture etymology and look at all the different things in pop culture that have been impacted by the Phantom, even though the Phantom doesn't necessarily have the same brand recognition as, as you know, things like Buffy or Batman or Star Wars or whatever. But we interviewed Valerie for that, and um, in talking to her, I was like, you know, Princess Valerie is, is one of my favorite stories. There's something sweet about like a little girl kind of lost in the jungle, and it, there's something really, for me anyway, I think the reason I resonated with it is it kind of felt like me and my granddad sort of sharing that story together. And um, and she said it was, she goes, it was really interesting about that is dad wrote that when he and my mom were going through a divorce and you know, I wasn't getting to see either of them a whole lot because she was a touring actress, her mother. But it was his way when that comic came out of letting her know that he was thinking about her. And I just kind of love that sentimental reason. <laughs> That's, that's one of my favourites too, and what I like about it as well is the way that uh, the Phantom and Diana treat Valerie is really, really beautiful, yeah. and and also I guess the way that it was illustrated as well, you know, I assume that Rainwall would have known Valerie, or would have had some, some pictures of her, her at least, and so Valerie is this very special character, this very special beautiful girl in the story who everyone really, really cares about, and the Phantom is so angry yeah. at the people that have tried to harm her as well. Twinsies. I think what's interesting, you pointed out before, that the fans get the uh, pop culture references like Buffy and, and Star Wars and stuff, and they haven't, apart from the film, there hasn't been a lot of presence in modern day cinema and television. I mean, how wonderful would it be if we had a Phantom series that sort of came to life to bring Phantom into modern day times and give it some life itself in this current climate? And I, I think personally, um, it's got like limit, limitless appeal because if you want to have a TV show or a movie, you can dip back through history. You know, you can have like a nearly hundred years worth of stories to tap into. Well, yeah, five, five hundred. So you know, you can do. <laughs> I get like in real time. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so if you want to do like a, a Wild West themed episode of a TV show. There it is, or a whole movie, or you know, um, Gaslight era. You know, it's it's, it's up for grabs. Um, your surname is Walker, is it? Definitely. <laughs> oh, just just checking, Chris. Um, with my favourite issue, mine often surprises people because my my favourite story is a story in a European story called the Beanstalk, and it's on it's on no one's favourite list. But to me personally, it was one of the first issues I had. And just so you know, just so you're aware, the way that the Phantom has been published in Australia, it's not sequential. Like they, they didn't print them in the correct order. So you might go down to the newsagent and buy a story and it might be 80 years old. And then the next one might be 20 years old. And the next one might be brand new. And so the first few Phantoms I read, uh, the first one I actually ever read was a story about the 19th Phantom, and so I didn't really get what was going on. I didn't know why it was set back in the past. And then the next one I read, the Phantom had a girlfriend, and then the next one he had a wife and two kids. Like it was just sort of all over the place. 
But the beanstalk was a story about a, a young man who um, who was um, stolen from. Um, he, he was the son of a chief, but he didn't realise. He was the son of a chief who was stolen by uh, another chief from a different tribe who was envious. And he just took him to Morristown and just put him in someone's doorbell. And this kid had experienced this terrible life where he ended up out on the street and ended up being involved in gangs. But he always had this, this moral code. And he ended up in prison. And the Phantom comes to visit him um, in prison as Mr. Walker. And I think that might have been the first time I'd seen Mr. Walker in the comic as well. And I thought, this, this, this guy looks fantastic, you know. But it was the characterisation of the Phantom in that particular story that really got me. And, and I've tried with my stories to make that the way the Phantom is. Like he's, he's fair and he's compassionate. And so that story, even though like most people wouldn't have really, might not know about the story at all, it's not like a famous story. It's just, in my opinion, the quintessential Phantom personality shining through. And yeah, if you get a chance to get out and read it. I think that's mainly because there was a an animated fandom series called Phantom 2040, which I'm sure the audience has seen before, but it's from the 90s. It was done by the guy who did Aeon Flux. So it has that very specific style where human biology is like, but there's a lot of artistic liberty to it, right? Everyone kind of, yeah, people move like spiders. It's fucked, but cool. Um, <laughs> and that was set in the future and climate change has happened and the little virtual reality is a big part of it. But it was a really, I think, clever adaptation of the source material, trying to adapt it for an audience who wouldn't be familiar with the character, but at the same time, acknowledging the people who had followed that character all the way through. And I think that's like a realistic, concept for a show now because if you were doing that live action purely just because of the set pieces it makes it so expensive but that thing that the phantom has with like the 500 years worth of stories right that's what i think is so rich potentially from a television point of view like an anthology series where you can have an episode that's truly walker or you could like dip into those other phantoms and get to explore that where you can have like a guran bottle episode or something that's the sort of stuff that my main job like what I pay my bills with is I work as a screenwriter and if I was pitching a show I think that's how I would pitch it because um, from a modern lens like we know the Phantom is more than just a white guy in the jungle in particular there's a huge difference between like a Tarzan king of the jungle who rules the jungle and a Phantom type who is part of the jungle who adopts the mentality and ethics and code and belief system of the people of Bengal who he's grown up around and so we have his fathers and his fathers and so on and so forth. So trying to bring people in and not exclude people would be the way that I would, I would think to do it because there are so many variations to that story that that seems like the gold mine to me. I'm just going to ask you as well, like some people consider the Phantom problematic because it was written so long ago and you know the, the theme of the jungle was so popular back then you know, and it's, it's borrowed from borrowers as well, of Tarzan and things like that. And, you know, there's there's a lot of sensitivity now about that, and some people want to give that whole thing a wide berth. Do you think it's better to embrace that? Or how would you go about doing it? Well, I kind of always thought the way, if you were trying to do the Phantom for, well, two ways. 
1996 film, I think, is clever by setting it in the period. Seems really clever to me because it's like you're viewing everything from that lens. Everything the film is set, it's supposed to be set in 1941 or something like that, right? But I sort of always think about the way you would do it now is to make the make the Phantom black. You know what I mean? Make the Phantom somebody who was from the Bengali tribe. For whatever reason, there wasn't a male heir for that son, or like the Walker line gets exterminated, or something like that, right? And that is the way you sort of bring it into the fold, or you just have to to find a way to sort of break down those borders. But it is really fascinating because the Phantom, you know, you mentioned Burroughs, right? For sure, was a product of its time, right? So it comes out in 1936, and that's sort of like the era, the peak era of adventure stories, your Zorros, your Shadows, your, all that kind of stuff. And the Phantom already, story-wise, compared to other things at the time, not that this is like Gavin Battle, but like least racist, least sexist, particularly the sexism stuff. Like Diana Palmer is like boxing, you know, in the first in issues. The, in the first panel. Oh. In the first issue, she's, oh. she's punching the Legit, and so it's like that. That stuff is so interesting and progressive, and it like speaks to like Lee Fox's interests and in, in different types of women and things like and like vulnerable stars and the types of women. Like um, there was this silent film actress called Clara Bow, who was really famous for this part called Roughhouse Rosie, and uh, and she was like the big movie star at the time. But her whole thing was like she always played these like lousy broads who would be punching on people and she was somebody who got discovered on the street in a fight with someone when she was 17. So you know what I mean? It's just like incredible shit where like the, the subtextual thing is textual. But when, as, as the Phantom progressed, I think one of the reasons the Phantom has survived and most other comics from pre-Golden Age or around that period haven't is because the Phantom evolved and grew so you have that obviously with the shift of artists from you know Ray Moore and Thomas McCoy to Cy Barry, but also with the types of stories that are being told. And as things like Lee Fork casting a black Othello, Paul Robinson in his stage play version of Othello, um, as that's happening in the 40s, right in the middle of when like segregation still exists and like it's illegal in America for the in America for the interracial marriages, and then on stage, she's casting a black man as a fellow and a white woman as the lead. And so that becomes controversial. He's pushing the boundaries there. You start to see a shift in the story as well. And Cy Barry had his whole, he was younger, you know? He was like a good solid, almost 20, 20 years younger than Lee. So he's even thinking about things more differently and progressive. And he grows up in New York, which is a very multicultural city. And so you see the phantom start to shift as things around him, like American civil rights movement, second wave feminism, all that stuff comes into play. So I think that's that's sort of how I how I would do it is is to progress because I just think like I don't know I don't feel like it's it serves anybody to hold things from 1936 to the standards of 2022. You know, doesn't make any sense. You don't know what you don't know until you know it. You know. Um, probably, probably thought it, we would all be in flying cars by now. I mean, hashtag same, but... <laughs> well, I've always, you know, felt for a long time that the Phantom's like, you know, two minutes away from being cancelled. Mm. But it, it is up to, like, the, the new writers now. Yeah. And I think, like, Tony and Paul, I don't know if he needs to be... Oh, yeah. Yeah. I know. Yeah. Um, he's, he's making real efforts to, to really recognise and to um, celebrate, you know, different cultures, even yeah. though, like, they're fictional cultures. Yeah. Um, but I like that idea too about having, you know, Phantom uh, somewhere along the line 
marry yeah. a black woman. Yeah. It's just, you know, they, they, these characters they live in this country, they grow up surrounded by these people, but they always end up marrying a white woman. Yeah, and you're going to get them from the mainland. <laughs> like, it's so stupid. But that would also be a perfect example of like the meshing of the two cultures. You know what I mean? Like this is part of the reason that there's such a huge global black phantom for the phantom is because this character resonates with indigenous communities globally because he's somebody who lives among the community who looks after the land believes in the value system all these things that are like traditionally indigenous value systems that's why that character resonates so that would be an even even smarter way i guess to mesh the two stories together and make a lot of sense i think one of the things that's interesting to me is that these days we look at things um back in the 90s 80s George Lucas created Star Wars. You look at these old, the, uh, the pop culture stuff where the original directors bring to life this story. You fast forward it to current time and these new directors who are fans of the original source are now giving their own, their own twist on how they perceive that story. So I guess in the Phantom world, how do you think that is relevant now for the new writers to stay true to the original source without becoming too much fan fiction of their own creation? Um, I think that that's me. That's me right here. Um, you know, I, and also, you might say Duncan as well, in the front row here. Um, we are both super fans of the Phantom. And I'm very conscious of staying true to the original vision. And you know, what, what's interesting with fans, like unlike Star Wars, where, where Lucas made those films and then returned to that universe and made those prequels, which were, you know, tonally very different. And then some people despised them and some people liked them. With the fans, and Lee Fogg wrote that thing for decades. Yeah, 60 plus years, yeah. that's crazy. And, and, um, I mean, I, I could talk all day about that, like, well, I should just stick to your, I want to go on a tangent for a second. because he had this spectacular idea and you alluded to Buffy and Vampire Slayer 4 and I hadn't ever thought about this before you mentioned in the podcast that Buffy may exist because of this legacy idea which was introduced by Lee Fogg. I just wonder, in, in a different universe, in a parallel universe where Lee Fogg would have aged Phantom in real time and had him marry Diana in real time and have the kids in the 40s and they grow up in the 50s and take on the mantle in the 60s and then the original Phantom dies or, you know, for a change she retires or joins them on their adventures and then we'd be in a position now where we'd be up to like the 25th or something with Phantom. Isn't it? <laughs> and you say that, it's, it's, like, my point. it's like watching The Simpsons, you know, it's been over 30 years and yet they don't age. Well, it is. It's like the Robins, though. You think about it, like Batman always has to, quote unquote, always has to be Bruce Wayne. Wayne, right? That's one of always, but like, like majority of the time, where every person on the street knows Bruce Wayne is Batman. But the Robins always shift, you know, like whether it's like a Tim Drake or whatever. They, the Robin character seems to be able to be transitional, whereas the Batman not so much. But to be fair, like Damian Wayne did play. Of time as well, but yeah, that's a really, really good point. And when they rebooted, you know, the new 
too. And they, they sort of implied that this universe being going for five years, that Batman's already on his like fifth yeah. Robin, and there's already Nightwing. Yeah. You know? um, I just think, and this is actually part of my, my point, like the Punisher and Batman, they're always retconning. Like, the Punisher's no longer a Vietnam vet. He went to Desert Storm. Oh no, that's too far away. Then he went to Iraq. Oh no, no, no. Now he went to, um, it was CIA operative. And with the Phantom, the Phantom is the only character that wouldn't have had that problem if Lee Brock had, have, had the foresight. And, you know, I mean, I can't expect too much from the man. This is, that would have been very, very progressive thinking back then. But one, one thing that gets me with, with the Phantom is you read a story where the Phantom's in the 70s uh, in Vietnam, and you think, which Phantom is this? You know? And you read a story where the Phantom you know, meets Diana in the 30s, yeah. but then you read another story where he was born in 1945, and you read another story where, you know... Well, like the early origin story is the, well, like the first Phantom is the descendant of like an English nobleman, yeah. and then they shift that to make it more Americanized and to really centralize the story, but it is really interesting, and I wonder, so you, you say like if we had the shifting phantoms, maybe that means it keeps it current, but the other thing is maybe it means that the phantom doesn't get to exist, because people get really attached to different versions of that character, and if they felt like it was shifting every 10 to 20 years, maybe, because there was that period in the sort of like the 50s and 60s where comics were just dying in the arts, you know, it was like sort of before, like if you went Fantastic Four or Spider-Man, these characters that had been there from the beginning were just disappearing. And it's always really interesting, especially I think in the context of the podcast coming out, and like doing interviews with press and talking to people, and they're like, you know, why do you think the Phantom isn't alone as other characters? And I was like, well, I think that really depends on who you're talking to and what you define, or they say, why do you think the Phantom isn't as successful as other characters? And I'm like, define success because being the first superhero and you're still published today, that's success to me. You're still published globally, that's success. Okay, sure, you haven't had Ben Affleck and George Clooney and Val Kilmer and Rob Pattinson and Adam West and, you know, whatever, Michael Keaton play you in several different film versions, but that's for right now. You know what I mean? Like, I genuinely do believe that it, it, all it's going to take is the right adaptation because that's genuinely how you have character longevity now is you have to have cross-platform media infiltration. I'm talking games, I'm talking comics, I'm talking novelizations, all of that. You know how bloody hard it is to get Phantom merch? Oh my god, I had to have a friend to make me his ears custom, you know? Edenki and Artist Ellinger, check us all. I'm not really a fan of the of this particular franchise, but this is where I think... No, 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 Phantom, it's... No, I'm not a Doctor Who fan. But the one thing I can appreciate for the Doctor Who fandom is that they are progressive in the sense that once a Doctor's time is done, they then hand the torch on to somebody else, and that story evolves into that current Doctor's way of thinking and how they are. Their personality. And a new new cast of supporting characters. It's a great inbuilt mechanism because it means the show can shift with the times in a way that... But it's also shift with the times, dot, dot, dot. But whatever this is, it's not forever. So if you don't like this particular doctor, don't worry, there'll be a new one in five to six years. And, or that's, the, and that's the thing too, it's in, in Doctor Who, 
at the end of each of their, 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 their stories, they hand the torch over to become a new Doctor. Whereas with other series and stuff, they just get rid of one character and just rewrite them and reform them, where this is a constantly changing character with their own story, but it all just follows on. And that's what I think would be great for the, for the Phantom. I think there's a possibility of doing that as well, because like the 21st Phantom is the one we've had since the 30s, and everyone loves him, and no one wants to see this character come to any harm. But at the moment, I, don't, I think Kid and Halloween have never been so popular. Children of the fans, and they're getting more and more adventures, and it seems to be that the newspaper script is really focusing on them, and, and, and it's sort of it's setting them up for this gradual transition. And I think you know you were saying before that people love the character. If if Lee Falk had of um, if if kids had of grown up with, yeah. with Kid and Halloween, yes. and then one of them became a Phantom, yeah. that would be that generation's Phantom. You know, like the kids in the 70s would have known the 22nd yeah. or the 23rd Phantom. And that, you know, and that, even that is so generational. So what, what's happening in, in reality, fathers and sons and daughters and grandfathers all enjoying the Phantom, it would actually be paralleling in the comic universe. Yeah. Does any of the audience have any questions? Want to come up and answer? Pressure, pressure, pressure. If not, it's okay. We'll keep going. Yes. Come on, mate. I can see you all day thinking. <laughs> so, is, is, is there anything else apart from? Is there anything that we're obviously phantom fanatics? But is there anything else that sort of that helps? I guess make you passionate about the fandom. Is there other fandoms you enjoy that you can see? I guess that could be inspired by the phantom that we are. Everything. It's so it's so wild because I think. Um, I can find anything interesting if I try hard enough. It's like the worst, best thing about journalism is like, I started as a police reporter, right, but you would still have to cover journal news. So you'd literally be covering like a double murder one day and the next day they'd be like, right, you're off to a schnauzer meetup. And you're like, what the fuck? Like, how is this? <laughs> and you're gonna find that interesting. You're like, oh man, I was like, and these people love these dogs. Cool, like, don't you love these dogs? And it's- it's have <laughs> But, um, so it means that now, like as, as someone in my thirties, I can find anything interesting a lot more I sort of dig into it. And I've always found the Phantom interesting and enjoyable from like a consumer perspective. But then when the Phantom Never Dies got greenlit and got greenlit by Nova, which to me was so wild because it's the only podcast on their network, respectfully, that doesn't have someone uh, from The Bachelor or Bachelorette on it. Like every, all the other hosts are legit from Survivor or Australian Idol or Bachelor or Bachelorette. And I'm like, hi, I love <laughs> pop culture scholarship, but let's talk about the mechanics of storytelling anyway. Um, but the, the thing that was really interesting was you, you're telling the story, you're trying to bring people into the show, to the world of Phantom, who might never have heard of this character before and have no interest in it. At the same time, people who do know a bunch of stuff who want to come on this journey as well. So you tell it chronologically because that makes the most sense, right? But as we would get, and I, you know, everybody knows those stories about like World War II and Norwegian resistance movements being inspired by the Phantom and stories of Fellini um, making bootleg Phantom comics and bootleg Mandrake the Magician comics to feed his family. Stuff that's like a fucking amazing story. 
but you also start connecting the dots to other stuff and you're like, the Buffy thing you mentioned before, for instance, so for those who don't know, um, in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the whole conceit of the Slayer is into every generation the Slayer is born. She alone stands against the forces of darkness. She is the Slayer. And so it's this idea of a generational duty that gets passed on from one to the other to the other, only in the event of a death, which is literally what the Phantom does. You know, it's like the oath of the skull. You know, my sons and their sons should fight greed, piracy, injustice, and all its forms. And something like that, though, I don't think there would be much connection between people, between Buffy and Batman, I'm sorry, Buffy and Phantom. They would maybe go more, obviously, the Phantom and Batman, because Batman is literally created because the Phantom is, is becoming so successful. And even stuff like um, the term serial killer, for instance, that is, the, the guy who invented that term, uh, Richard Breslow, who, sorry, Robert Breslow, who worked in the Behavioral Sciences Unit at the FBI, he was a massive fan of the Phantom growing up. And at the time, when they were starting the VSU, they were using the term sequence killers and stranger killers, not serial killers. But he didn't feel like the term was necessarily correct. And so he was thinking about it in the context of his favorite serial, which was the 1943 Columbia Pictures Phantom serial, where you had to come back each week to get the next installment of the story. And that was how he thought about serial killers, because they had to keep returning to the crime, returning to try and recreate the effect. And it's like, we literally had the term serial killer because the Phantom was a thing that existed, you know? So it's just like lots of stuff like that where the pop cultural tendrils of the character in big ways and small ways have just like rippled through time that I think it's it's really important to talk about because I don't know, I'm sure we've all had those conversations with people who maybe aren't big pop culture people and say, well pop culture doesn't really matter, or like comics don't really matter, or stories don't really matter. And it's like, you know, those stories and those characters and people telling those stories that echoes out into ways that you can't even imagine, especially a character from 1936 that still hangs around. It's interesting that you were just talking about that whole the serial stuff. I remember when I was a little kid, um, and, and my grandparents, every Sunday, would be like, here's, here's 26 to go get the, the, the Sunday mail. And the one thing they used to love doing was coming back, and you know, in just four or five little sequences, each week, they went from a little, they just created this massive little story in just such a short amount of frames. And each week, you had to come back to see what the Phantom was going to do. How was he going to get out of what that frame was? And you were like, I can't wait for next Sunday. I need to know what's going to happen. And they did that so well where every single week they would leave you on a, on a, on a cliffhanger. And I think that was fantastic of how they were able to just capture five or six little frames and keep you on the edge of your seat every single time. Well, think about it in the context of Papua New Guinea, where the character is the most popular character in Papua New Guinea is the Phantom, still to this day, right? And there are lots of different theories about why that is. One of them is that a plane crashes in a remote part of Papua New Guinea during World War II, and on that plane are Phantom comics that the Allies have, and that's the first time people get access to it. But that's unverifiable, it's just kind of like a cute little urban legend. But the genuine theory is that in the 70s, people start coming across from Australia into Papua New Guinea. They bring with them Phantom Comics, which are obviously hugely popular here, hugely popular in the Torres Strait. And for the first time, Papua New Guinea in mass is getting exposed to the Phantom. 
and then it starts getting translated into the most popular dialect, which is Tokmasin, which is essentially like Pidgin. And so people can access that comic in their language. And the character is called the ghost who walks. And in Papua New Guinea culture, when you die, if you come back as a ghost, your skin is white. So they interpreted it literally as he's one of us, he's a black fellow. And all the characters around him are black. And it's set in the jungle in a specific geographical terrain that was very similar to Papua New Guinea. So that was their, that was their story. And that was the first time they got to see versions of themselves represented. And it's important too because it's Saibari's art and the way Saibari drew characters of colour was very different to earlier Phantom artists and the impact that that has. And then when the 1989 Papua New Guinea Civil War comes along, they're going into battle with these tribal shields that are literally like seven and eight feet tall. And the strongest warrior of every tribe will have the phantom painted on the front of their shields. Like that's bananas. That's like, you tell somebody that story, that sounds like, and then you see the damn things. I'm sure like, I don't know, maybe, has everyone, has anyone seen? Yeah, they're fucking Sorry, this child knows. They're crazy. Um, they're truly just unbelievable. And like that idea of tribal pop art, which is the, the curatorial term, it's just nuts. That's, that's iconic cultural symbolism. Oh, it's truly, it is truly just absolutely the way that infiltrated. It's just like the Coca Cola symbol and the Phantom. <laughs> that's right. It's not Superman's logo. It's not Batman. It's not Wonder Woman. It's, it's this, this character which in our culture is, you know, disappearing. And that's, I think, due yeah. to the, the lack of merchandise. It, genu it genuinely, like, I don't know, I took me, I had to, it took me like, it took me like a year and a half before I could find a way to get a hold of a Phantom t-shirt. Like the two Phantom t-shirts I had were both vintage. So it's like, even then, it's like, you can't, you can't wash those things. They're like, half the space is peeling off, there's a bloodstone effect that you don't ask any questions about. Or, you know, there were things that I had to like genuinely like hunt down and source. And, like, I've got such regrets because, you know, in the, in the late 80s and 90s when I first started collecting, you know, every comic had um, ads yeah. for t-shirts and I never had one, you know, they just always seemed so expensive to me because I was just a kid so I never had one. And now, like, yeah, they're rare. So hard. I bought a Phantom film crew shirt on Amazon that I was like in a, like a bidding battle with someone in Wisconsin for like months and I was like, oh, I'm getting hold of this damn crew shirt, so help me. But, it sounds so silly, but it really is like a basic thing, like being able to access a phantom t-shirt or a phantom hat really means the character's face and iconography and image penetrates in a way that it just mad like for instance, I had a manicure once where I had each of my individual nails was painted with a phantom. I was on the tram and I was holding onto the pole and there was a lady kind of like across the tram and she was Indian and the phantom is humongous in India as everybody knows. And she literally got up on the train and she's like, excuse me, that's the phantom drawn on your nails, isn't it? And I was like, yeah. And she's like, so telling me this huge story about her, her and her family, a massive phantom fans, and like her dad got her into it, and it was this huge thing. And it's like, if that iconography is not something visually where people can see it, you don't have that conversation, you know? And I, I always think about like my own kids. Um, they're, they're exposed to like the Marvel DC characters on a daily basis. And even from when they're little, you know, it, it's on um, lunch bags yeah. and pencil cases and, and rubber stationery. It's just, it's everywhere, absolutely everywhere. Mm -hmm. And and they, they first get to know Batman and his personality through cartoons.
tanks and then you know eventually movies and there's just you know there, there's one source of phantom you know, there was the cartoon, obviously, you know, the Defenders of the Earth. Defenders! Is that theme song? Defenders of the Earth! <laughs> even, even that, you know, like, this is something we discussed numerous times. We just wish that the, the, the owners of the IP were doing more. Yeah, I cannot believe we almost have to, have to wrap up. This has been an enjoyable panel. But um, as someone who's a casual reader, sorry, um, I collect toys and uh, review them and stuff like that. I do have a Phantom Hot Bar. Now I've noticed that there's a red one and a purple one and there's an Australian exclusive which is grey. Can you tell us the, the difference between the coloured suits of the Phantom and why it's not just one colour of the purple? Well it's like a licensing thing. Back in the day um, you could essentially like acquire the licence from King Features to publish in your country which meant that you had a, you could change the colour of your phantom to make it specific and unique to you. So different countries would have different coloured phantoms. And it's actually really interesting on those Papua New Guinean war shields I was talking about, depending on what region of Papua New Guinea, it's usually the Western Islands, but like depending on what region they come from, some of their phantoms will all be brown. So you know they're reading New Zealand phantom comics. And some of them will be blue. And like some of them, so as the colours change, and it's not just a pigment thing, like over time they fade. It's like you can tell it's a specific art thing. You can say, oh, that person's got access to that phantom or that phantom. And in some cases, it's the red and yellow suit, which is, and the skin's black. So they're drawing Condo Man, which was the HIV AIDS awareness character that was targeted at Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities and was based on the phantom. And so they're drawing that on their shields, making the connection that's the phantom to us. And so that kind of stuff is just, yeah, anyway, I don't know if I summarised that quickly. No, very well, yeah. And that's wild too. Because those characters are also the Brazil yeah. characters, but he's white in Brazil. Um, well, based on that answer, I know the Australian version was grey, because when they released the toy, it was with a grey outfit and it had Australian exclusives. Well, that was his intention, is the character was supposed to be called the Grey Ghost, and then there was a like a mistake kind of in the inking process, and Lee Fall wasn't there, and it went to print purple with the blue and black striped trunks, and it's like, well, it's LRV, he's purple now, which I'm kind of so glad he is, because this, it's, a, it's an iconic outfit. There aren't many others, I can't think of many other superheroes. And it's such a good junk in the flush. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, such a good point. And you're like, holy shit, there's a huge guy over there in a purple suit with a pet wolf and a white stallion perched in a tree. <laughs> I was going to say, like, you know, if it looks like green or browns or something and you sort of fit into the background, yep, no worries, but bright purple in the middle of it, of a, where purple isn't really a primary colour in the jungle, it's like, uh, uh, there's a tree, tree, giant purple man, tree, tree, tree. If you were adapting it into source material in the show or film or whatever, I reckon I would make it a variable costume so that would so it's a nice little wink to the history of the phantom so it's changing based on the surroundings but when you're not like needing it to activate colors I would have it in purple all the time but then when he's happening the jump it changes and so that's that is, yes Outside panels flip and it becomes glass and they look invisible. So, find the woman, invisible gem. Yeah, exactly. But how do you find it? Yeah. <laughs> Alright, we've got time for one more question. If anyone's got a question for the panel or you want to close the panel out with this, 
I want one question each. Enjoyed that. Uh, again, a huge shout out to Sean for recording that for us. 
um, and being a roving uh, Melbourne reporter. So, and Sean's done this a couple of times. So, thank you, Sean. Uh, thank you to Matt and Marie for agreeing to let us uh, be able to put this panel discussion onto a podcast. And hopefully, you, the fans, enjoyed that. Now, if you did, Please, you can follow us on our website, which is chroniclechamber.com. Our email is chroniclechamber at gmail.com. We're all over social media. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. And we're, of course, on Instagram. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, and the various other apps. And that is all for me. Until next time, happy fancy and stay safe. the sole survivor of a shipwreck. And upon the skull of the man who killed his dad, he said, I'm mad, I must eradicate piracy, injustice and cruelty. And all my sons will follow me, so evildoers will believe that this man cannot die. The Phantom, the ghost who walks. The Phantom, enemies beware, the Phantom's always there, but you won't find the Phantom. He finds.